Welcome back to Sustainability Street, CPE's podcast on the intersection of commercial real estate and the world we live in. I'm your host, Therese Fitzgerald, Executive Editor of Commercial Property Executive. New York City's Local Law 97 is the most sweeping decarbonization regulation ever enacted by any city. As per the law, the city enlisted a 16-member advisory board and a number of working groups to make recommendations for how the groundbreaking law would be implemented for the 50,000 properties it impacts. My guest, Fiona Cousins, was a member of the advisory board, hoping to bring the critical engineer's perspective to the process. The advisory board met for hundreds of hours over three years. Cousins heads the Americas for Arab, the global engineering firm, and she is the first female to fill that role. In 2022, Cousins was honored with a Bevy Award for her contributions to the advancement of women in engineering and sustainability. Here's my conversation with Cousins about Local Law 97, how it compares to what other cities are doing, and her views on the important role engineers have to play in public policy. Fiona, many of our listeners are already familiar with Local Law 97, but for those who aren't, can you briefly describe the magnitude of this law and how you have contributed to it? Yes. So New York City enacted Local Law 97 in 2019 as part of a suite of laws that make up the Climate Mobilization Act. And the purpose of these laws is to reduce carbon emissions in general, but Local Law 97 is particularly focused on reducing carbon emissions in buildings. The law places carbon caps on buildings that are larger than 25,000 square feet, and that's about 50,000 residential and commercial buildings in New York City. So the caps will start in 2024, they get tighter in 2029, they get tighter again in 2035, and so on, and eventually emissions are reduced from buildings by about 80% by 2050. So Local Law 97 builds on a number of laws that were passed a long time ago, so everybody who has a building of this size has been reporting on their energy and their water use for about 10 years. And so New York City actually has a very good idea about where the caps should be set and what everybody's energy use is so that they can understand where do we start? What is the starting point for this? There's been a lot of baselining going on. So Local Law 97 sets a really strong context for reducing carbon emissions, in particular through work in existing buildings, which are very, very difficult to do because everyone is different. I personally was appointed to the New York City Climate Advisory Board, which was announced by Mayor de Blasio and Speaker Corey Johnson in 2019. And it had 16 members, eight appointed by the City Council, eight appointed by, by the Mayor. And our job was to advise on Local Law 97 the way that it was originally written and passed. It had a lot of room for interpretation. And the job of the advisory board was to figure out how it might be interpreted into laws by the Department of Buildings. So obviously regulations like this are not easy to implement and that's why they need engineers like yourself and they are of course not easy to comply with. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the compliance challenges building owners face and how you were able to bring some of your clients' concerns and everyday realities to your work on the advisory board? So the law itself is very easy to state, right? If you are emitting more carbon than X, then you pay a fine. Um, And one of the things that 
we did in the advisory board is we we thought really hard about what should the rules, what should the interpretations be. So there were a few things we looked at. One of them was how should buildings be split up in New York? You know, what's the right number of occupancy types? What's the right, what are the right caps for each different kind of building? Because it obviously depends whether you're a 24-hour building, whether you're an intense energy user, whether you're not an intense energy user. So there was a lot of discussion about how buildings use energy, and particularly how buildings with different programs use energy and how that could be properly applied. There is another piece about this. Residential buildings tend to be much more heating dominated. There are less things happening inside of the buildings. So there are fewer lights, fewer computers. The density of people is usually less and you don't cook all the time. So there are very different challenges for residential and commercial buildings. And then the other part of this, of course, is that most of the buildings already exist. I think something like 80% of the buildings that we'll have in 2050, we already have the number varies depending on where exactly you are. But that means that for most buildings, in order to come into compliance, especially in the later stages of the law, they either have to electrify to take advantage of the decarbonization of the grid, or they have to completely replace their systems in some other ways in order to be able to become more energy efficient. And the renovation of buildings is it's notoriously difficult to get payback in purely energy terms um, when you're renovating a building. And one of the things that the local law does is it tilts the playing field a little bit so that if you can also avoid a fine, your payback could happen, should happen much, much more quickly. How were you able to use your engineering expertise to bring clarity to some of the law's bigger mandates and questions? Local Law 97 Advisory Board included engineers and architects and community advocates and so on. It was a very broad advisory board. And the work of the advisory board was split up into a number of working groups. And the working group that I spent most of my time on was the Carbon Accounting Working Group, which was stocked with, manned by, uh, peopled by about 30 engineering educated people, as well as some others. So what we did in those working groups, particularly around carbon accounting, was we had conversations that covered, that were, were very much founded in engineering knowledge and sort of the technical realities, but that also ranged out to, well, what is the social impact of this? And what is the impact of this on different kinds of buildings? And how do we do it? So we, we spent about three years talking every other week about particular aspects, trying to move on some of the things that were, were most at issue. So some of the things that were most at issue were to do with what is the carbon emissions factor of the grid going to be in 2029? And what might it be in 2035? And what impact does that have on the carbon emissions of the buildings that we were working with? And then what kinds of moves could be made by buildings in order to, that are feasible, that are cost-effective, feasible, and actually begin to get you below the cap? It's, it's difficult to write a, a law that nobody can comply with. There has to be some pathway other than simply paying the fine. So the conversations that we had in those working groups, and in particular in the carbon accounting working group and the commercial buildings working group, which I also attended from, from time to time, were really about what's the engineering that underpins this and what are the broader impacts of those engineering decisions as we think more deeply into the future. And when you talk about carbon accounting, I know one of the sticking points for owners is they don't control the consumption and the carbon emissions in their building because tenants are using energy too. Is that part of the conversation? Uh, yes, that was very much part of the part of the conversation. Um, it, it does depend a little bit on the building. So you're, you're right, some buildings have tenants and the, the energy use in the building is split between the things that the landlord uses 
and the things that the tenant use. And in some cases, the tenants also install the systems, depending on the kind of building that it is. And the way that the law is written, it's the building owner that actually has to come up with the, with the sign money. Um, I think that these ideas about split incentives, about the landlord may pay some money, but the benefits accrue to the tenant or vice versa, always been one of the sort of hurdles and, and discussion points for renovation in existing buildings, especially renovation for energy efficiency, because the people who have control of the thing don't necessarily have the benefit. So I think that, yes, there has certainly been pushback in those, those cases, but for many, many buildings, actually the systems are controlled by the owners. They have the ability and to do it. And the, the usage is partially with the tenant, but actually the system type, which can dictate very much the kind of energy that you use, whether it's a fossil fuel or whether it's electric, and some of the control of that system is still in the house of, hands of landlords in much of the city. Interesting. I have had guests on the, this podcast that say carrots work better than sticks. What is your feeling on regulation versus incentives for decarbonization generally and in the context of this regulation? So I think sort of in general agree that carrots work better than sticks. But I think that there is a question in the market as a whole about whether you set a floor or whether you, you set a ceiling. And I think that we see this in many kinds of market transformation efforts, right? Uh, we see, saw it in particular with, with LEED. LEED certified was something that people needed to aspire to in the early stages of that certification. And LEED platinum was something that you really had to aspire to. It was very, very difficult to get to. And what that allowed was for people to do experiments and try things out that were maybe not completely mass market ready at the platinum end of the scale and push the market along with them. Because if you once you've tried it once, you're, once somebody else has tried it, you can no longer say, oh, that's never been done in another building. So the market moves up towards you. And over time, LEED certified became certainly in some markets a place where if you didn't get certified, you didn't even try in your new construction project. And so it became more of the floor because if you wanted to be a class A office building, you more or less had to be able to say, and I've achieved a lead rating system. Mm -hmm. So that particular thing raised the floor and it was, of course, entirely voluntary. So that's an example of a, of a carrot working. But I've also been in a lot of conversations where we sort of go through a spiral of doom as advocates within the, uh, within the, the built environment for better energy efficiency, where the owners tend to say to their engineers and architects, why didn't you persuade me to have a better building? And the architects and engineers tend to look at the government and say, why didn't you just set the rules a bit harder? Because if you'd set the rules a bit harder, it would have been much, much easier for me to persuade my clients to do things better. And then the, the governments tend to look at the owners and say, well, we govern at least to some extent by the consent of the governed, and you didn't call for more stringent recommendations. So you end up in a vicious cycle of not really raising the bar in the way that you could or should. So I think that my answer to your question is really that you need carrots and sticks. You need sticks that raise the floor. And I think that Local Law 97 does some of that. It says, come on, if you're really not doing this well, we're actually going to fine you for it. It's not just a question of non-compliance. You've got to put some, some money there. And I think at the, the other end of the, of the scale for really good performance, there are not many carrots in Local Law 97. That's kind of the nature of legislation rather than of a voluntary scheme. I think that there should be carrots, but I don't think it's necessarily Local Law 97's job to provide them. After a short break, I ask Cousins about what other cities are doing to regulate and reduce carbon emissions.
Hi, I'm Jessica Fior, Editor-in-Chief of Commercial Property Executive, and I'm here to spread the news about the premium content that you can receive in your inbox by subscribing to the CPE Daily Newsletter. Our experienced writers regularly put together special reports on the hottest topics in the industry, and you can get all these expert insights for free. To sign up, visit commercialsearch.com news today. Thank you. Local Law 97 will certainly be a model for other U.S. cities and globally, but uh, New York City is not the only city taking bold steps. Are there other U.S. cities that should also be emulated for what they are doing? Yes, I think there's been a lot of a lot of eyes on um, on Local Law 97 and how it worked out, especially as the the law was written with quite a lot of negotiating room in it, you know, the requirement for an advisory board to give some additional advice to figure out what the right answer was, was certainly there. But um, Boston has their Birdo regulations, uh, Cambridge has Pudo regulations, New York, uh, Washington DC has BEPS, California's Title 24 and San Francisco have all started pushing and tightening local legislation around energy efficiency and beginning to try to make it retroactive on buildings. So I think, yes, there are other places trying it. The the thing that is not in Local Law 97 that I think that many of the other jurisdictions have begun to look at is actually, let's say much more explicitly that electrification is something that we want. And I think that the other thing that they're also saying is that many of them actually have an energy efficiency requirement in there as well. If you take only what it says in Local Law 97, as long as you meet the carbon cap, you can do whatever you like. And actually, you can meet the carbon cap by using fossil fuel free energy, which means that you can actually then, as long as you're fossil free, if, you've only, if you're only worried about a carbon cap, you can use as much of it as you want. That's clearly not actually the right thing to do in the middle of an energy transition, because it requires that you build so much more energy infrastructure to take over from the existing energy infrastructure. But it complicates things a little bit because you then have to have two metrics, the carbon metric, which is what we're really worried about, because that's what we're in the climate crisis and it's carbon emissions that matter. And then the energy use intensity is a is a marker about how you should get there by minimizing your requirements before you start thinking about your source. And I think that that's the kind of the next step for other cities around the world is, is to make sure that both energy efficiency and carbon emission reductions are incentivized. Absolutely. And then the US is still catching up to Europe and Canada in these matters. Are there any European cities that have been particularly innovative in their regulation? I think it is different in Europe in particular. They've had a reporting scheme for a very long time around both predicted energy use of a building and then the actual energy use of the building. And so there are energy use certificates and asset energy certificates that tend to appear on buildings and those are getting tighter and tighter, but actually that's, it's less a uh, city regulation than a, than a European and country level mm. um, regulation, but it is tighter and more widespread. Yeah. On the national level here, we tend to do more incentives than regulation, I guess. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that you see some of that coming through the, the new laws, the Inflation Reduction Act and others. There are, there are a lot of incentives and therefore climate change mitigating ideas mm -hmm. around electric vehicles and so on. So I think that, yes, politically in the US, it's clear that incentives work better at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Where 
bipartisan support is often needed, but in the states which tend to be a little bit more skewed in the cities, which sometimes are skewed even further still in one direction or another, politically, you, you get different kinds of regulation. Right. I think we actually need both the carrots from the federal government and the sticks from the state and local. There's actually not a, not a bad way yes. to make sure you're getting change on both ends and you're both incentivizing it and then making sure that you're picking up making sure you're picking up the laggards, I, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then beyond the burden of compliance, you see some big picture opportunities in the New York market and nationwide resulting from the decarbonization policy push. What are those? I think that there are some opportunities specifically around decarbonization. So I think uh, I've mentioned already that one of the things that comes out of this is that in order to decarbonize, you have to do an awful lot of work in the grid. And I think that what we're seeing there is some ideas about what does the grid look like? How do you make sure that it is as robust, that it is as resilient, that it provides adequate power, but also accommodates these renewable sources, which are much less controllable um, by others. So I think that there are many opportunities to do with how you make that transition, some of which are to do with grid storage and some of which are to do with things like um, hydrogen, which can act very much as a storage mechanism from what from periods of high generation to periods of high demand when the two things don't, don't coincide. So I think that you know, these, the three things, the, the capacity of renewables and other non-fossil non fuel sources on the grid, the control of the grid such that all of the pieces can work together, and then storage capacity within the grid are probably the three kind of big opportunities there. I think that the other thing that we're beginning to see through the decarbonization of the electrical grid, which is leading to the decarbonization of buildings and also the decarbonization of transport to some extent, an electric car is only better if it has a fossil fuel carbon free uh, source of electricity. I, I think that we're, what we're beginning to see is that the most significant carbon emissions then come from the stuff that we make. So I think there's going to be quite a, a significant shift to considering embodied carbon and the circular economy and the life cycle of materials um, that will be it will be an opportunity for for many people it's like how do you do that what are the problems that we're trying to solve how do you make sure that those things are properly brought to the market i recorded an episode on the circular economy and i interviewed a couple of arab people for that yeah Back in December, you wrote a piece for greenbiz.com about how engineers need a voice in public policy. Can you sum up why the engineer's perspective is so important in policy matters? Yes, yeah, so I think these problems that we're trying to solve, right, decarbonization of the grid, the introduction of more biodiversity, the proper thinking through of development such that it presents opportunities for better social equity, or even maybe rebalancing the playing field in favor that in favor of people who've been marginalized over time. They're huge, wicked problems. They need every skill that we can find and they need diverse thinking in order to be able to get there. You know, obviously my perspective is one of an engineer. And I think that what I know from having been an engineer and knowing many of them is that we tend to like to stay in our lane and not necessarily look at the big uh, picture. And then there was sort of a, the, the stereotype of, of somebody who actually would really rather not talk to anybody. And I think that what I'm really suggesting in that piece is that we have a lot of very good technical information that's arisen out of the things that we know and have deep expertise in. We definitely bring a kind of 
voice of reality. You know, the, all of these problems are at, at root engineering problems, the construction of infrastructure, the provision of power, the, the managing these, they are all engineering problems to some extent. So I think that we have the core expertise that is, that is needed. And then I think the other part of it is, is to get my, my colleagues and, and fellow travelers to say, actually, no, your voice is important. And actually you have to claim your space at the table and actually come forward and talk about it, um, that it's not okay to be shy. These, these problems need everybody. We need to find ways of making sure that we can include all voices, not just those of the engineers, but that the engineers' voices are particularly important because there's this connection to reality and the sort of mechanics of how it gets done that I think it informs the overall strategy, but it very much informs the detail of how things get done and what is actually plausible and feasible. And is your work on Local Law 97 ongoing? We were sort of appointed in perpetuity. They have the right to call us back at any point. Um, but I think that the big piece of work that we needed to do was to provide the Department of Buildings with enough advice to write the rules. And that has now been done and those rules have been published. So I, I'm not expecting to do anything like such an intense period of work on the advisory board again. Okay. Fiona, one last question. What other public policy initiatives or collective private actions are you involved in or would like to be involved in? So one of the things that I am currently involved in is actually a, something in, in the UK, but it's around how we do the calculation of net zero carbon or whole life cycle carbon for buildings. Um, there is an enormous amount of work to be done to regularize the way that the calculations are done and to make sure that the data on which those calculations are done is is very well grounded in reality and that and that it's correct wherever you do those sets of calculations so for example the embodied carbon of a steel beam in london is not the same as it is in san francisco is not the same as it is in china because the way that it's manufactured distances travel to site and the way that you've raised it up to the place that you need it is different in all of those places so the calculation methodologies become very very important so i think that that's a, a place where i think there's room for collective private action but also for public public policy i think that one of the other areas where we could really take some strides is in the area of resilience so as climate change happens, many places around the world, their climate changes and the things that they are you know, at risk of um, become different. And so I think that one of the things that we should be much more getting ready for is how do we make sure that we are adapting or protecting the built environment assets that we have everywhere in the world such that when climate change happens, whether that's through changes in temperature, changes in sea level, changes in rain profile, changes in drought profile, that we understand what could be coming and that we've strengthened our infrastructure so that we can deal with those changes. In some cases, it might be about deciding to abandon a particular asset because it is just undefendable, or it may be that actually there are things that you can do that, are, that put, put people in a much better position should whatever that disaster is actually happen. So I think that some better thinking around resilience is something else that I would really like to see both public policy and, and collective action on. And it, it doesn't happen as a matter of course, because we're all very used to discounting the future. It's like, it'll never happen. It, it's very difficult to kind of get over that sometimes. There's so much to be done when you talk about sustainability and, and buildings. There is, there is so much to be done. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Fiona. I, I really enjoyed all of your comments. Thank you very okay. much.
And thank you listeners for joining me on Sustainability Street. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to me at therese.fitzgerald at cpe-mhn.com. Bye for now.